If you like the podcast, tell us what you think on Twitter. Tweet at us, follow us at OCAPBYCAPPOD. For now, my favourite part of the podcast, which is the annoyingly catchy theme song. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Welcome to Oh Captain, My Captain. Uh, my name is Mark Olver, and I am here with uh, Mr. Ricky, uh, middle names forgotten, Masindo. How are you, Ricky? I'm good, Mark. You made that sound like I was a boxer about to come into the ring. Uh, do you know what? I was uh, sort of going for that a little bit, because we talked about this briefly when we said hello, that um, I listened to last week's episode, and I sounded so tired, uh, because I've been sort of... <laughs> I'm still in hotels, by the way. I think this is, yeah. I, I don't even know what number hotel this is, but uh, I say I've been in a lot of hotels, doing a lot of driving, um, doing a lot of TV warm-up. So I am a little bit tired. And I listened to last week's and I thought, oh, oh God, I sounded a bit tired, a bit grumpy. So I thought I'd come in on this one and go big. Um, but then I realised that I forgot your middle name. Because actually your name's <laughs> not even Ricky, is it? No, it's not. Uh, my name is very. So do the first one first. Okay, so I'll, the... I'll show you my driver's license for a visual aid. Can you, can you see any of that? No, you can't. My camera is a piece of shit. Okay, no, 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 no. That's all right. Yeah, no, that's quite. I can't work. I can just see the Macindo bit at the top, and yeah. then just below that there is a lot of letters for your. Of, um, and also, mate, of... that is that is one grumpy-looking uh, driving license picture as well. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. I've never taken one of these without being hungover. I'm not going to lie. Even my uni picture. Like, I'll show you that too. I mean, this is not a visual podcast. I'm sorry. I was going to say, this, but... is a, this is brilliant. This is brilliant content. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's that other one. Yeah. Again, just yeah. grumpy boy. Just a grumpy, yeah, just grumpy, grumpy, grumpy boy. boy. If you want to see the pictures, I'll put them on Twitter. Follow us at OcapMyCapPod. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my middle um, names. My middle name. So do your first Prince. name. Do your first. Do your first name first. Uh, so my first name is Rukudzo. So that's spelled R U K U D Z O. And then my middle name is my dad's name, which is Sima Yedwa. So everyone calls him Sima for short. And my other middle name is my granddad's name, which was Gijima. So G I J I M A. And yeah, no one calls me that, but it's just a lot so of So do the whole thing from beginning to end? So my name is Rukudzo Simayedwa Gijima Msindo. That's how you pronounce um, it. When, uh, and how many people, like when you were at school, were you yeah. always Ricky? At home, were you always Ricky? Are you always yeah. Ricky? No, actually. I actually, uh, I think about this all the time. I am so many different names to so many different people. Oh, like really? I have, yeah, I have so many different nicknames. Like at home, I'm Kuku, like Rukudzo, Kuku, you know, it's adorable. Oh, it's okay. I mean, if I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, mate. That's the one that's sticking with me. <laughs> it is adorable. It's adorable. And then to my friends, um, I used to be Rukudzo, but then I came into school, uh, to my British school being Rukudzo, and then everyone struggled to pronounce it. And then one day in chapel choir, because I was a choir boy, 
they yep. just decided to start calling me Rookie for short for Rukunzo. And then eventually that nickname evolved into Ricky because people were hearing it wrong. And then I became Ricky. And then I chose the spelling R-I-K-I. So people name know my full name isn't Richard. Um, so that's the story behind that. And then um, other nicknames. Some people in my house, my housemates call me Coods like Kudzo, it's Kudz. Um, and then um, my girlfriend, she doesn't even, she just calls me like loads of pet names and stuff, but she never calls me Ricky. Yeah, Ray. and you know what, mate? I, I like Cuckoo, but uh, I don't need to know the pet names. That <laughs> makes, genuinely, just, yeah. makes me, just makes me feel a little bit bilious. I think she'll be all right with me telling this story because uh, she's a lovely person and is a good comic and... Uh, is is interesting and intelligent and but if she isn't then we won't put this bit in the podcast but <laughs> i was chatting to uh Pravanya Pile, who is yeah. uh, a great comic from bristol and a really nice person and we were talking and she came up to me when i was introducing her at a gig the other day and she said oh do you mind if you introduce me as Pravanya?" and i was like Oh, what? Because I've always introduced her and said and spoken to her as Prav. Yeah. Uh, and and I was like, oh, God, have I been calling you Prav? And I shouldn't have been calling you Prav. Have I been calling <laughs> yeah. you Prav? And I should have been. And she went, no, no, no. She said, I just, I want to be introduced as Pravanya because I've been embarrassed or reluctant to say to people, can you introduce me as Pravanya? Because it's a slightly more complicated name to say mm. than Prav. Yeah. Um, but I want, uh, but I don't want that to be a thing. Like I want, I want mm. my name to be my name. And I would absolutely. And Interesting. I would a hundred percent, because I've already forgotten um, Rakunzo. Rakunzo? It's close enough. Rakunzo, but you know. Rakunzo. Mm. But, well, no, this is the thing, because it shouldn't be close enough. <laughs> us... Us one-syllabled Anglo-Saxon name people, we've got yeah. away with fucking murder for too long. Mark, yeah. like it's just like it's literally onomatopoeic. It's just a yeah. noise. It's just perfect. And, and <laughs> oh, thank you, mate. And the fact <laughs> of the and and the fact of the matter is that like when in Zimbabwe, I'm guessing people wouldn't have a problem with. Rakunzo, I've done it wrong again. But do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I guess it's strange because it's like it's it's quite conflicting because obviously you want to be like, oh, you know, this is my name, you know, don't call me anything else or whatever. This is how I identify as. But for me, it's because mine the thing that is like the most like primal name for me is Kuku because that's what my family called me. So it's like that. I have barely ever been called Rukunzo in my entire life. Like there is no one who actually just addresses me as Rukunzo. So I think it was quite easy for me to be like, oh yeah, just call me Ricky. Because I was literally, I have another name that I'm already used to. But but at the same time, like with with Pravanya, it's just, I, I've been calling her Prav too, because that's what other people told me. And she told me really, recently that yeah like she prefers to be called Pravanya and it's I didn't know that that was the reason why yeah but I like people should be called 
the name they want to be called. They exactly. shouldn't be called the name that they were given by someone else. They shouldn't be given called the name that they were given by their parents or their school or or their, they should be called the name that they want to be called that makes them comfortable. And actually, yeah. for me, I I find it weird sometimes when people call me Mark. Like I find it really? a little bit weird because most people call me over and the reason yeah. most people call me over is because uh, there's not many of us. Like there's me, yeah. <laughs> like especially yeah. in TV or on the circuit, um, a couple of camera operators uh, call me Bristol. All right, Bristol. And I quite like <laughs> Bristol. Uh, all right, Bristol. Um, when I was at university, my nickname was Pob, uh, based on a public character uh, in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Why did that uh, fit you so well? <laughs> I know, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Mark doesn't necessarily feel... Uh, it's fine, because that is my name, but I do feel like over because so many people call me over. And also, it's fun to shout, over! You know, it's over. fun. Yeah, to shout. But when you then start looking into kind of basically sometimes there's probably a book written about this and there's probably people who know a lot more about sort of history of uh, sort of immigration into this country and uh, people from all over the world coming in. There's probably some really interesting thing about the way that, you know, and depressing thing about the way that white people and white English people just go, no, that's your name and that's yeah. the one you're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, no, what I find really interesting is like, because with with African languages, like Shona, which is the language spoken in Zimbabwe, like specifically, it's a very phonetic language. So you pronounce it how it's read so it's like okay. if you so if you were like it, so it's when an english person reads my name they overcomplicate it because it's like they see they think it's like french or something where two letters make a new sound but it is actually read exactly how it's spelled like ru r u k u d z o ru ku d z o ru ku d z o it's literally exactly how it's how it's written and so it's, I always find it funny when people see it. It's just like because of the complicated English tongue that they're like used to like weird letters next to each other. They got just their brain melts. Absolutely. That is a very, very good point. Um, so our guest today is the brilliant Dane Baptiste. Uh, and we will uh, talk to Dean in a minute, Dane in a minute. And he is doing the reading list. Um, do you know much about Dane Baptiste? Have you seen um, any of his stuff on TV or on YouTube and stuff? I've seen his Netflix, uh, the BBC, like a uh, special, I think it was. Um, yeah, that was pretty much all. That was one of the first specials that I watched when I was trying to get into stand up to see, you know, how it can be done. I did the warm up for that, I think. Of course you did. I was literally wondering. <laughs> I, bet, I was like, I bet Mark did the warm up for this. Just, <laughs> this absolutely, this monopoly you have on this is just ridiculous. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, the live at the BBC sessions. And so quite a few of those, because they did a deal with Netflix. And so quite a few of those shows that come from uh, that set. So there was we did it at the BBC Radio Theatre um, in the centre of London, in the West End. And uh, who else did them? Um, Felicity Ward, Alex Edelman. Mm, yeah, um, I watched Alex as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, the second tier is Matt Ewins did it. Um, Adam Hess, Sophie Hagen. Yeah, lots of... So wow. I was there. That was a brilliant couple of weeks, actually, just doing that. Um, Dane's a brilliant comic, uh, a brilliant bloke, and absolutely loves his stand-up. So uh, we're going to talk. We're going to do the reading list, and we are going to um, hopefully... I'm quite excited about this one, because I think mine and Dane's influences might be slightly different. <laughs> so I think we might... So I might learn some stand-ups today that I can go and Google and, uh, and have a listen to. I'm excited. Uh, so here we are with the reading list and the wonderful Dane Baptiste. Um, so we are joined on a captain, my captain today by uh, the fantastic Dane Baptiste. How are you, Dane? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, taking it a day at a time. Happy to be healthy um, and working. How are you guys? We're all right. We were talking uh, in the preamble, and I just I realised it. So we were talking about so Ricky's name, Ricky Masindo, um, His name is not Ricky. So we were talking Yo. about. Um, <laughs> so he came over from Zimbabwe when he was a kid, and and did that thing. And I don't know if you know people who have had this situation where you their family or their parents basically, and over time their names change. And these English people who have problems with African <laughs> names and Chinese names. So Ricky has slowly become Ricky. Are you? I've just realised. Are you Dane? Is Dane short for anything? Are I'm you not, Dane? I'm fully Dane. I'm fully. I'm fully Dane. It's it's not a stage name. Um, it was a very difficult name to have when I was younger because it wasn't that common. It was basically everyone was Dwayne or Dave or Shane. Uh, Apparently Shale, I feel like, cause I'd introduce myself as Dane and people would be like Shale and I'd be like, surely you know it's not Shale. Like, <laughs> even if you're just doing like a process of elimination, like why is Shale even up there in the shortlist? But um, no, it was always my name. And then bloody Dane Bowers came out with another level. So then I'd be like Dane, mm. they'd be like, huh? And I'd just be like, like Bowers and they'd go, oh yeah. And I'd be like, uh. Oh, that's a dreadful reference to have to throw it's in the as well. Worst. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I'd much prefer like Taylor Dane or the rapper Dana Dane, who had mm. the album Dana Dane with fame. But I feel like that's more of an American reference. But yeah, most British people would be like, oh, like Dane Bowers. And then they'd be like, Ehh. and maybe to a lesser extent, like Dane Cook, which is a bit more acceptable. Mm. So, um, yeah, which means I'm, I'm probably not the most successful Dane in comedy at this point. Um, I'm not sure if you're supposed to directly compare, right? Because if your name was like, I suppose if your name was, your surname was Spielberg or your first name was Stephen, or if you just went by the name Bill, to be like, what, like Bill Gates? You're broke. I don't think it works the same way. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, no. absolutely. Yeah. But also, you're the most successful Dane I know. Ah, oh, cool. I'll take that. And also, it's the dog in it, the Great Dane. Like, you yeah, the Great Dane. Yeah, People would go, oh, like the dog. And I'd be like, what kind of dog is it? And I just know it's just, it's just very, very big. That's yeah. what I know about Great Danes. They're enormous dogs. Um, and Marmaduke is a Great Dane. And maybe Scooby-Doo might be one as well. But don't quite Do you know what? I think Scooby-Doo That's might a... be a Great Dane as well. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Great, so, yeah, he must um, be actually. So you, so you see the references. And he's and Scooby-Doo is a small Great Dane with a uh, serious, serious Napoleon complex, as we know. But it was just like, <laughs> as you can see, struggling to find an example of a Dane people to go, oh, yeah. It was always a weird conversation. But um, I'm very comfortable with the name now, though. So, and I understand because uh, English people do struggle with uh, African or Asian names, having a relatively anglicized name has been, it's been easier. 
It's been easier. Still, still can't get a key ring at the theme parks, and it's still hard to get. <laughs> still, still hard to get souvenirs because you go, Dave, David, Dante. Oh, fuck this place! <laughs> uh, imagine being four years old and looking for a kudzo at Disney World with the little mouses. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I can. Did you do that? Were you yeah. actually, did you actually look try and find merch with your name on Rakuza? Yeah, I did because I was like, I didn't really understand the concept of like names coming from different countries. So I was just like, oh, Rakuza, this might be here in Disneyland, Florida. <laughs> yeah. No. No, maybe, never maybe, maybe maybe not Florida. Maybe Disneyland Paris, I would have said, but <laughs> maybe not Florida. But I feel like that's a thing. You know what? I reckon it would have been it would have made sense for Disney, it's particularly during their promotion of like Lion King, mm. to yeah, you know, to, to you know, taking a lot more uh, African names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? Hopefully, like, hopefully, big bit. I mean, capitalism is always in the forefront of like equality because they just want to sell stuff to as many different people as possible so you'll probably yeah. start finding that you could probably go to a disney park somewhere and whatever your name is you can probably have that printed on you know mickey mousey is now it just costs you a lot more money that's so true actually i'm gonna try that next time um but today you're not even dane today you are the librarian so you are um this is the reading list and you basically own this library of comedy where me as the inspirational teacher when ricky is bored of me he goes into the library at lunch break and talks to the librarian who recommends him the greatest stand-ups the greatest albums the greatest specials did you when did you know that you were into stand-up what was the first stand-up that you that grabbed you Oh, that's a good question. I think I would say the first stand-up that grabbed me. I was, I'd see stand-up and I kind of enjoyed it, but I probably didn't know exactly what it was. Um, mm. So I'd see uh, like Jasper Carrot had a TV show and he would do like a monologue before going into sketches. So I kind of like that whole idea. Victoria Wood obviously used to kind of like intersperse like the musical numbers with uh, some uh, narr- narrative as well. So I kind of liked what I saw, but I wasn't sure what it was called. And then... Um, when I was about 10 or so, my my parents got uh, a cable box and we used to get BET and it's like BET Comic View, Dio Hewley. And again, it'd be like, he'd be like snapping on audience members and be roasting them as well. And it was, it was like, that's kind of like what we do at school, which looks fun, but he's doing it by himself and he's quite sharp. So again, it was like, I, I probably didn't take the time to ask anybody what it was because I was like 10 at the time, but I was like, this looks really fun. And then I think for me, uh, it was Eddie Murphy's Raw because it was like mm. the uh, first, uh, <coughs> like a stand-up movie of sorts. So I was probably the one when I was like, if this is what stand-up is, then I love this stuff. So it was like, you know, him doing your classical joke structures. Uh, obviously, Eddie Murphy historically being an impressionist. So those are very accurate as well. And then, yeah, having the kind of long act outs when he's talking about marriage and relationships and stuff. So for me, it was like, so stand-up is almost like you have, you can take all the trivial knowledge you have and use that as a premise for jokes. You can do impressions, you're able to do act outs to express yourself. So for me, it was kind of like, I felt stand up as Eddie Murphy presented it, kind of covered a range of different sub genres of expression and entertainment, which I kind of liked. It was like, he'd sing a bit, but not too much that like he was trying to be a singer and he'd rap a bit, mm. he was trying to be a rapper. He'd act a bit, but not so much like he was doing like a, a monologue. So it was like combining all the fun elements on a very kind of, just in a, in a, very, sh- on a, sh- a very shallow level all kind mm. of combining to create this whole this whole thing with just one person. And uh, 
So I think that was probably the most typical, the, the quintessential example of comedy that I saw. <coughs> um, and, I, and I think that was like, I was like, I like the idea of stand-up. And then seeing, I saw Chris Rock uh, do Bigger and Blacker. And mm. I think it was the editorial of what he was saying where I was like, so I, I like how it's expressed by Eddie Murphy, but I think it was the content of Chris Rock's material where I was like, that's what, if I did stand-up, this is what I'd want, what I did to look like. So I'd say it was kind of a mixture of those two as well. Um, and then, yeah, and then I saw uh, Leo Muhammad and Russell Peters, and then I got to see Dio Shuli live when I was 15. And I think, again, so it was like seeing the craft and then seeing that the uh, interpretation of the craft by Chris Rock and then finally seeing it performed live in real life, I think at 15, that was it, that was it for me. So like, okay, so we're already going into names and and references that I don't know. So we'll go mm. back. We'll go back to BT. So what first? And that's so. What is BT? Is BT Black <laughs> Entertainment Television? Yeah, which is now yeah, owned by yeah. Viacom, but I think at the time it was independently owned. Mm. And yeah, uh, yeah in, in, obviously in America, the idea was that it was just to overtly provide African Americans with uh, television entertainment that reflected them, which has been a real contentious, uh, you know, mm. status for BET to have. I mean, obviously some people love it, some people hate it, but I think in the case of my parents, it's like, you know, I always explain to people, even in now representation in the media, it's like if you're, you know, starving, and then even if someone gives you stale bread, it's the best bread you'll, you'll have ever had. And so even though BET may not show the entirety of the range of the diaspora, both uh, in America and abroad, it was like just to see people that represented you was still amazing at the time. And, you know, for someone growing up in the UK, just having shows which may have a, a majority black core cast or having a black protagonist was still quite a rarity at the time when I was growing mm -hmm. up. So something like BET, I think was really good. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people who may not enjoy like celebrity status now, but may have had a small appearance on BET's comic view. So part of their, uh, you know, I guess their broadcasting included uh, a lot of stand-up comedy. Um, I think BET's comedy probably preceded uh, Russell Simmons' Def Jam comedy, which I think a lot more people are familiar with as a brand. Mm. Um, but before that, it was um, Comic View with uh, D.L. Hewley. And um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think it was very influential. He actually, he while he was doing Comic View, uh, he had the uh, guest spot on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Oh, okay. Oh. I remember there's an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bella where um, Will's uh, friend comes to see him um, who's auditioning for stand-up. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, Will's like, it can't be that hard. And then he does this little act out in the uh, offices and gets like a five-minute spot, which goes terribly. And it's going to kind of jump in and help him. Um, and I think it was, yeah, for me, it was very interesting to... I find that one of the most informative episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bella because at the same time, I grew up with The Fresh Prince of Bella and even seeing Will Smith's comedic timing as a comic actor, I really enjoyed it. And obviously it was like, like something I wanted to emulate, but then becoming aware of the distinction between performing stand-up as opposed to like comedic acting, I was able to kind of glean that very well from just that one episode and just work out what the difference was. Um, and I think because I, it resonated with me so much, I was like, it probably wouldn't matter to me that much unless I was very much interested in those two separate art forms. Yeah, I've got you. Ricky, you, uh, when I just said to Dane about BET, I noticed you smile uh, yeah. because uh, Ricky is absolutely used to me 
not knowing a lot of the references when we talk about the black British experience. Yeah. Um, did you have, is, B, is BET Ricky something that would have been on in the Missindo house as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, well, yeah, I'm used to your whiteness, first of all, but like, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's, it's um like, it was uh, like in Zimbabwe, we didn't have BET the channel, but we had BET the brand. So we had the shows and we knew they came from BET, but we didn't have the actual channel. So like, I remember watching like Fresh Prince, the Parkers, like watching a bunch of stand up, like my wife and kids, like those kinds of shows. And that, they were like very informative into like the uh, comedy, like part of me. And I think, I think it's just something that kind of happens that when you're a black person, like wherever you are in the world, Africa or the UK or America, you kind of just gravitate towards TV that shows people like you on TV. So it's like remarkable that when I came to the UK and met other black people, they knew shows that I knew just because we had both been watching TV at the same time. And I, it was just something that I would, didn't think would actually happen. Yeah, it's a good point. I think, I think people underestimate how instrumental media is for its providing that commonality and culture for people in different places. And I think particularly members of the diaspora have depended very largely on media and a representation of ourselves because, you know, we're aware that like in places which don't have a necessarily higher population of African immigrants or, or uh, you know, citizens like the Far East, for example, their experience of black people is going to be largely what they see in mainstream media as well so yeah so the, the part of representation can become very important but i think it's always down to uh, mark i think it's really down to like with sitcoms stuff for like that people sitcoms the idea is that they uh are trying to emulate some kind of family paradigm and that's why they're supposed to work and we're supposed to identify with them but i think even with that um for people to completely engage with it, it Initially, you have to be able to see it on, be able to see something that kind of looks, represents you, and a state that kind of represents yourself. Um, for a lot of people, I think, especially with media, which is superficial by nature. But I think if, uh, as time goes on, people can tend to see parallels between anyone's life and they can see the similarities there. But um, yeah, I think media was, um, I mean, it still is crucial now, but I think at the time, um, especially growing up in the 90s, where there was basically a large, large gulf outside of music where there was very seldom any representation of uh, black archetypes in sitcoms and in comedy it was very important to just grab a hold of whatever you could so i think uh, all of the aforementioned derek you made like you know the parkers and uh, my wife and kids moesha like these are all institutions mm. and i think on a global scale because there wasn't any really anywhere else where those existed because i mean i did study d myself and that was like 20 years after the last sitcom with a majority black cast appeared on British TV. So yeah, I was kind of, I'm aware of that scale as well. And it's, it's definitely informed the work I do now that it's, uh, that I can make sure that there are a few, uh, whatever aesthetic or body of work I could create is, um, not too broad that people can't see it's my own work and it's about mm. my own distinct life. But at the same time, it's not so nuanced that if some, if a, like person from outside the UK saw it, they wouldn't be able to identify with uh, the themes that I, I kind of cover. But when you started Discovery, like a lot of the references you talk about, especially with BET, are American references. Yeah. What like what was it like discovering like British comics, not just black British comics, but white British comics as well? Like when you started, oh, I, I loved it. I think I think I think for me. They, that was probably my primary influence was seeing like British sitcoms. So 
before I became aware of like, and kind of immersed within African-American culture, I still kind of like, I'd, I'd watch Black Adder on a random thing because it was one thing I could stay up for and I'd enjoy Black Adder. I really liked um, French and Saunders, uh, Ab Fab, I used to watch Lowe's, um, Birds of a Feather, I thought it was a really great sitcom. And it was like a large, there was like a window in the nineties where it was like, you could see this trajectory of loads of comedians going into, well, it was more, just as before, Ameri- I saw a lot of Americans who would go in from stand-up to having a sitcom and it was like a natural mm. passage. But um, yeah, so far as like Hale and Pace, Cannon and Ball, like for me, I, I think I just very much got into comedy. Um, uh, Russ Abbott was a big fan of his sketch show as well. So yeah, I, a lot of the old, the old guard kind of, I was definitely into it. Like I, I have a very clear image of the song Stonk, which is the Red Nose single. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stick a big nose on your conk. And I was like, okay. <laughs> As I see the roster of like alternative comedians and stuff, like I was very much into that and I paid much. But then when you were, but then when you were 15, you went to see this, you went to see an actual gig, a real yeah, so, life yeah, real life gig, yeah, at Catford Broadway. Where was it? Catford Broadway Theatre. Um, I think I remember seeing Rob Beckett's name there once, which was cool. Um, and I was, yeah, at 15, I think I'd, it was just after I'd listened to my, my friend's mum and had a trip to America. She came back with two uh, audio uh, uh, discs of Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker and also Eddie Griffin's Voodoo Child. Mm. And yeah, so I listened to those intently, found those amazing because I wasn't aware that people even recorded stand-up albums so mm-hmm. even just the idea that you were able to communicate this just using it in, on an oral medium, I think it definitely influenced me and informed uh, my aspirations about becoming a comedian. We've and talked then, about Chris Rock a lot on this podcast. I, I I don't think I know Eddie Griffin. I don't think I know Eddie Griffin and I don't know that. Do you know Eddie Griffin, Ricky? Yeah, he's one of those comedians that's like always been in the background yeah. in my house. And like, that's always been there, but like... I've never that's the crazy thing about him, it. yeah. That's the crazy thing about it because he's like in the background, but at the same time, it's like this guy's been in a lot of films. Yeah, like, he's yeah. Been a lot, he's had a, quite an illustrious career and been able to do it by almost like just being in the background. So he was in Chappelle's show. So he plays mm. uh, Grits and Gravy in the World Series of Dice. Um, oh, he yeah. also played the Gigolo in um, Deuce Bigelow. So he was <laughs> Deuce Bigelow's pimp. He is in another film. Um, he was in two music videos for with Tupac and Biggie Smalls as well. Oh, he's rich. so he's he's also in a. I think he might even be in um you know the video for California Love, which is like the Mad yeah. Max video. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think he's in that as well with Chris Tucker. Mm. Um, what's he done recently? He did a film with Jean Claude Van Damme. I think he's in a film with Jean Claude Van Damme. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I know he he said he did a film. He filmed something in South Africa with uh with Vinnie Jones because I, I I opened for him a couple of years ago in Belgium. I was like a mm. random Mirth Control gig, and then it turned out I was uh, doing opening for him in, um, I opened for Eddie Griffin in Rotterdam and also in Antwerp. And yeah, just speaking to him, the guy knew everybody. And mm. it's very interesting, because I guess I've been around comedians with varying levels of notoriety and uh, status. And it was kind of like, he seemed to be in a very nice space where it's like, people know him, but they don't know him. It's kind of like, I know your face and you're a cool guy, but. He's not being hounded all the time about paparazzi or for pictures, but then we were in a hotel and there were some like two American guys on a business trip. So they were like, oh my God, Eddie Griffin. So yeah, he's just, um, but yeah, a real intellectual. And uh, again, I think he's just been very influential on terms of my material. But when I went to Catholic Broadway, the opening act was uh, Leo Muhammad, 
It was a part mm. of the cool pass for the Real McCoy sketch series, which was obviously on the UK, which was enormous for any Black Britain. I think when the Real McCoy came out, I, I would say it's you know it's the Black British equivalent of like Seinfeld or Friends for mm. like significance and how long it has been that that and so. See Liam Muhammad again. I already seen him on um, the Real McCoy at the time. He was Leo Chester, and then he uh, had made a conversion to the Nation of Islam. Um, so I think for some people it's like, well, this seems to be quite left in terms of aesthetic. But I think I had seen, being kind of like reared on the whole BT and kind of Def Jam, there was always those very frequent references, particularly because it was a New York base. There was a lot of references to the Nation of Islam, the Nation of Gods mm. and Earth. So it wasn't a departure to me. And I guess the effect it had on me was that I saw it as, and I think that seeing those three, see those three acts almost were responsible for making up the elements of what makes up my comedic voice. Cause I'd oh, say okay. my first yeah. five minutes was probably like a Frankenstein's monster of Leo Muhammad. And I saw Russell Peters as well as Dio Hewley. And then that was, and it was like that baby was kind of reared by Chris Rock. And that was my initial, five minutes when I was trying to work out what kind of comedian I wanted to be because I guess seeing those acts when you think you know it's it made me think number one the uh, efficacy of your jokes will come to uh, how accurately you uh, describe cultures or make observations about cultures because Russell Peters obviously being a Canadian uh, uh, Asian man he, I remember I'll never forget he did a bit about his friend's dad being from St Vincent and how he confuses like singular and plural words and uh, and he's a character of a Caribbean to do that. And I'm like, that is absolutely true. That is exactly what my parents do. And to hear somebody do it, for me, it was just like, yeah, it was just like my head exploded. I was just like, you know, how the reward for when you make an accurate observation for me is much more um, rewarding than any kind of shock value, uh, shock value mm. joke you could make, any joke where you may be punching down or being contentious, I think the payoff from comedy, and that's just maybe based on my first experience of it, the payoff is from you saying what somebody's thinking and being able to nail it. Um, so that was what I got from Russell Peters. And then from Liam Muhammad, it was, I think it informs me that part of you doing observations has to involve some kind of social commentary because you're looking at the world outside. So if you're not to talk about not just the conspicuous and superficial phenomena you see, but like, you know, the consciousness of the people or the political disposition of people or the zeitgeist, of, you have to discuss that as well. So that definitely informed that. And then watching D.L. Hewley, just, it was just to remind you that even though you want your material to have depth and you know to be kind of cultured and to be poignant and relevant, it still has to be very, very funny. And mm. uh, you know, what you want is to be able to still be able to snap and have that wit as well in between all of these things. And so, I think that that show informs me that for you to be good at this, you need to combine all of those elements in the most effective way possible. Also, and then yeah, so I, but I used to, I used to say a lot of time that I want to be able to like perform on stage like Chris Rock, but be able to act it out like Dave Chappelle. Because I think after that, I saw a, a very uh, funny well cult film called uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights by mm-hmm. Mel Brooks, and that was, <laughs> that was the first time I saw um, Dave Chappelle and. It's Chappelle in Robin Hood, man in tights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone always forgets that. <laughs> yeah, everyone always forgets that. It's, I mean, yeah, so for me, and it, and it was that is a perfect example where it was kind of like learning how to look different to everybody else, but be able to exist in that space 
and still be funny and still maintain your confidence. And yeah, just an artistic dignity is what I learned from Dave Chappelle and Million Tats as well. So all of these things kind of were brought to the uh, forefront in my eyes around at the same time. I think they all kind of were part of the ingredients in making in honing my comedic voice or give me an idea of the comedian I was a spot I would have wanted to be. I mean, at the time- Did you know, did you know when you went to that gig in Catford that you wanted to be a stand-up? Did you already know that that, that was something that you, that that was a dream? Yeah, but it was definitely a dream. It was definitely a dream in the strict, strictest sense because I love the idea of stand-up. I love the idea that, 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 I mean, but the idea of being able to do that professionally was just, it was, wasn't really something I thought about. I was like, I like comedy and I like, you know, the assuming the guys of being a comedian, but if that means that I'm the comedian of my sixth form common room, that's fine because I just didn't really know how, I just, I, I mean, I was very strange in that, like my parents, I didn't come from like an artistic background. My parents, you know, my dad at the time was a mechanic. My mom was a youth worker. And I thought people that were involved in the performing arts began from a very young age and then went to the relevant schools and received like the relevant tutelage. And then as far as I was concerned, it's a pipeline from stage school to the Brits or Italia Conti or Sylvia Young. Mm. <laughs> a performing arts degree or and then some dude comes up to you with a cigar and goes hi you've got potential to break rash let me make you a rich guy and I thought, <laughs> that's, how, I thought that's how it kind of went that you'd have a I'll tell you what's really funny about that <laughs> I think Ricky knows what I'm just about to say is we did an episode in the first series uh, about agents and managers um, Jenny Collier was our guest and in the preamble I asked Ricky what he knew about agents and managers. And the impression that he gave me of an agent and manager is literally the impression you just did there. (laughs) (laughs) Like like beat, beat for beat, it was exactly the same. I mean, we grew up on the same kind of sitcoms where normally the guy goes, oh no, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. And some guy comes back and goes, hey, I like that song. Why don't you come to my office? Here's my car. I'm going to make you very rich. And they, they just turn to the camera and go. <laughs> the classic. Yeah, you got moxie, kid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What do you call it? Hutzpah. You got it. By the bucket load. So how did you, so when did you have that realization? When did it flip from like, you had to be born into a creative uh, family or you had to go to stage school. When did you realize that, Frankly, anyone can potentially be a stand-up. Like, where, was was that going to that gig, or did it come a little bit after that? Oh, it came way later, and it took a very long time for me to, to work out that anybody can do stand-up. Like, my idea of stand-up was still, I think, very skewed until the first major step, I think, was the, the credit crunch in 2008, because I feel like the need for stability and the need for a regular income and to be an example to my family was the biggest thing holding me back from pursuing stand-up. And I did, and it wasn't necessarily any kind of bitterness about it. It was kind of like dreams are fine, but you can't feed a family on dreams. And, and, and the same channels where I watched like the black sitcoms, you also watch the, the show. There'd always be like the biopic of the struggling jazz artist, and his wife's like, "We ain't got no food, Oscar." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, but I got a dream, and I just didn't want to be that guy. <laughs> Daddy, why are we saying, why are we starving? Because I've got dreams, pumpkin. I don't want to be that guy. So I think it's seen too many, like, yeah, I just watched too many biopics about like 
like black doo-wop singers and artists where he'd be like, you gonna kill yourself, Otis. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing to live for, mama. And I, was like, <laughs> I can't be that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be that guy. So after the credit crunch happened, I just, it was kind of where I'd been trying to rationalize my um, reluctance to pursue comedy with logic being like, it just doesn't make money, Dane. The credit crunch is kind of like, nothing makes money, Dane, now. Like anything can happen. So it was like, oh my goodness, there is stability is a lie. There's no things of steady income and, you know, a pension. And um, I think it was also like just some existential events, like watching my parents get old and having some health complications and me being like, what the, they work really hard. Like my parents aren't particularly unhealthy. They work really hard. And this is how they've been treated by the system. And then I was like, well, I can't take that seriously. And I just, I think it was just, yeah, it was more of an existential uh, point crisis where I was just like, yeah, this is some fucking bullshit, really. All of all of life is, and I can't really take it seriously. And I think before that precipitated into comedy, there was a lot of kind of soul searching and unlearning and researching I wanted to do about my life. And in retrospect, I think that also makes sense because it was important for me to have the broadest of these observations before I went to comedy. So I'd say 2008 was where I made the decision. It was like, why don't you give it a go? If it doesn't work, you can go back to doing a regular job and you no longer have this niggling question in the back of your head about what could have been. So that was probably the major shift was like, you know, my parents, my dad got sick for a bit, um, had a credit crunch kind of happened. And like I got, I was at the end of my first relationship. So it's like all you, and I guess it was me and maybe later on in my life coming to the point where I'm just like, really in this world, all you have is yourself. And I don't necessarily mean that in an individualistic way, it's more about personal responsibility that I was kind of like, if I want a particular type of life or I want to have certain accolades or employees or achievements, only I can do that for myself. And so the first piece of sage advice, Ricky, I'll give to you as a comedian or any kind of performing artist is that what you want from this, nobody else can give you. And by that mm. same token, it means that you can't have anybody censor you or your expression at any point. Like. I have, I, be, I believe, and I still believe I have a very strong uh, relationship with my family and my parents, and they definitely inform my decisions and just my, you know, my conduct and my moral compass and how I'd like to conduct myself as a person. But by the same token, you know, what I want from my life, there's only so much you can, a caregiver or a guardian can give to you. So mm. you have to do the rest yourself. And so I say that because if you're going, like, if you're going to pursue uh, something like comedy or any kind of art expression or creative industry, because it relies so much on you know your ability to come up with ideas and con- to come up with concepts that can't mm. be inhibited by worrying about what other people think or limiting mm. your thought based on what is social convention or what is cultural convention or what people consider to be normal social etiquette. And more simply put, you basically just have to stop giving a fuck. And <laughs> yeah. That's basically what happened to me about 2008. It was like, the reason why I might not be trying to be stand-up comedian because everybody wants to be an entertainer and I want to be able to be a productive member of society, my family. And it was seeing a few things happen in the world where I'm like, you can't necessarily take anything too seriously. And that philosophy, I try to apply to comedy and everything else I do, even when it comes down to like dealing with the politics of the industry, um, working within a very superficial medium like entertainment. It's like, things like your looks and stuff, it's like, you never, never taking any of that too seriously. So yeah, that's really, that's, that was, I think that was the main part for me. And then before I delve directly into the, <coughs> I said it, cause it's, I think it's largely based on observations. 
I wanted to be able to uh, take a look at the world, but without my eyes that had been trained by, you know, years of being within institutional education, mm. you know, being a part of the, you know, being a cog in the machine and stuff. So it was kind of like detaching myself from the machine, not necessarily going off grid necessarily, but I wanted to make sure that if I'm going to be able to utilize my mind to do this, I wanted to be as open uh, as possible and as adaptive as possible. And, you know, as I said, because comedy is about the efficacy of your observations, I want those to be very good. So I, I, I read books like, I read free. So first of all, I started reading a lot of popular literature because obviously mm. I wanted to kind of get into the mind of the people that I would potentially be speaking to. So I'd read books like, you know, Free Economics, um, read another book called uh, Weapons of Mass Instruction. Um, like any book around the same time that Freakin' Ops was out and Sapiens, like books mm. like Sapiens, I would see. Yeah. Books, I would see like David Icke. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, guys, so all the stuff you see now about like red pills, red pill thinking on the internet and, you know, anti-vax stuff, QAnon, all of these now uh, Frankenstein conspiracy theorists, when they were all kind of separate movements, uh, about 10 or so years ago. I just kind of researched all of those, not because I was like necessarily like, this is what I think is true, but I, it was more like being aware that this is how some people think. Mm. Um, and because I don't think it's important because I think the biggest gift to me as an observational comedian has been spending considerable time on the other side of the microphone. So at mm. first one, I was like, oh, I haven't been to stage school. I don't really know about the connections and what you're supposed to do and how you just get into acting. but. But I know it's like to be a regular person and go to work and have your lunch at lunchtime and go home and have drinks after work or go and see your friends or you know, see your friends take care of your kids or bring up their kids. So it was the regular part of living as a normal person. And, and then then having, then kind of nurturing a mindset where I could make observations about the stuff, but from the outside in. So from the outside looking in and definitely trying to approach all uh, things objectively rather than having my own subjective bias affect my perspective. So mm. I say, yeah, it was just kind of like the the end of uh, of the banking system that kind of started. And, and, the reason, and the reason I say that is because it's, I believe particularly within Western capital civilization, capitalist civilization, if you kind of want to work out how the world works, you tend to follow the money. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of useful in that respect. When you when you stopped giving a fuck, like how easy was it to start getting gigs, find gigs, do gigs? Like, did you find that because you you'd seen a lot of stand up, you'd seen a lot of comedy, uh, you'd watched that amazing gig. <coughs> what was the reality like? Compared yeah, very to- yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reality was very very different. It was very different at first. Like I. It, as, as, there were some similarities, but so when I first did gigs, so as you may or may not be aware, Ricky, uh, what do you have is, and they're not clear distinctions, but you have what's referred to as a black circuit and you have a white yeah. circuit. And what, and what they more are, are, it's more, they're all rumors, but you may have a predominantly black audience in one room, predominantly white audience yeah. in another room. And, you know, and it's, never, it's not like never the twain shall meet. It's not like no whites and no cats and no, you know, Scottish yeah. outside of black comedy clubs or whatever they put there. So it's just, and I guess by the token, and by the merit of you there being more, predominantly more black people in a room, it means you speaking about, you know, uh, the uh, issue of not being able to find your name in a souvenir shop because it's not anglicized, is gonna be 
that's an audience I can relate to that a lot more or, you know, mm. you know, talk to having, you know, immigrant parents may have a very different political disposition to, you know, mm. most British parents. It was, it's, people can relate, it resonates with people a lot more in those rooms. Um, mm. So I'd started doing some of some more black circuit gigs and there were, there would be a lot of them would be mixed bill gigs. So I'd be on with like other singers and other poets and, mm. and you know, <clears throat> artists. And yeah, it wasn't initially how I imagined because I mean, I thought they would have been a lot more structured, but then you can kind of <laughs> because yeah, it, it can they're very haphazard in in terms of that and audience members. But I guess I had no direct frame of reference, so I'd see. I know what it looked like, but to do it, I didn't know where you started or how that looked. So for me, I, I wasn't really complaining. I was like, I guess that's what people do, and there's a large part of that. So it's just at the beginning of the, the learning curve and working out what suits me and what's going to uh, help my pursuit and what's going to hinder it and what to say yes or no to. And I'd say what one of the other surprises was like, I was, I wasn't aware of like, um, like open mic being centered around like pop culture, mm. um, like mainstream uh, rooms. Yeah. Well, basically we always be above or below a pub or, you know, at the back of a pub. And so I wasn't aware of how much, uh, comedy culture in the UK was linked around pop culture. Mm. Um, but, but then I think it kind of makes sense when you kind of look at the etiquette of how people are in a pub and there's always someone holding court around, surrounded by everyone else having a laugh or illustration and banter. So, but yeah, the Black Circuit, I think, was an interesting one because I was aware of comedians like Cat B and Richard Blackwood and Curtis Walker, mm. as you mentioned. But I was not under the impression that I may be gigging with them after like my fifth or sixth gig on the Black Circuit. So it was amazing to like work with people you looked up to your whole life so quickly, but at the same time, I guess you become aware that the glass ceiling is a lot lower on the black circuit. Um, but then I guess I, I I didn't make it an intention to just play predominantly black rooms. It was just, if people are giving me time to get on stage and on the black circuit, you can be paid very quickly for your work. Then I'd be like, that makes sense if I'm going to do this. Um, but I guess there's, there's a limited amount of longevity in that. And that's just down to the sheer size in that, you know, the black British population is about 6%. And so the rooms and the availability and the abundance of those rooms is going to reflect that number as well. Um, so I, I guess I never, but once I became aware of that, it was just a good point of principle to let, leave my options open mm. and to kind of think, well, if comedy, stand-up comedy is like trying to emulate a style of conversation, I would have tried mm. to conversation with people based on how they looked anyway. So again, I wanted to apply that same discipline to doing stand-up and I said before I, I did my own personal and sociological study of people anyway so for me it was um I think the the setup where I was performing stand-up in many times was being very strange but I've always found that audiences don't vary that much I think there's a certain time and place and temperature or homeostasis for most people when they're sitting down and gathered uh, in a place for public speaking and so it's just learning how to deal with that. It's, it's, I, I did my first wedding speech before I did my first stand-up gig. And, <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I, and I think that went really well because people do place this large amount of pressure on it. But again, I'd never, I'd never spoken at a wedding before, so I wasn't aware of these kind of pressures and it wasn't really something I, I kind of thought about. And once I had experience, it went very well. And so I was able to rationalise that, you know, if you speak genuinely from the heart and uh, with good timing and take into account your audience, then those are probably some of the more basic elements of having a good set. Who, um, 
what comedians do you like now? Like who, your contemporaries or yeah. or newer people that you just frankly enjoy watching? I think there's. I think there's so many. I think there's so many people. I mean, one of the reasons I'm on this podcast, Ricky, is because that's what I like about Mark is that we work together a lot of the time uh, during filming and a lot of broadcast stuff. And for me, it's it's like someone who's able to make engage with an audience who is supposed to be enjoying comedic performance, but because it's being filmed a lot of the time, because a lot of time there are stops and starts and it's a lot more structured than people know, it does take a lot of energy to maintain that attention with people and to, mm. when it becomes disjointed, for them to build that kind of energy again, it's like a real evolution of the status of being like an MC and a compare. Mm. So I love seeing that because like, perfect example being when me and Mark and I, we did uh, live at the BBC, at BBC Radio mm. Theatre. And, um, and the show was running quite long. And so, you know, quite late night, people are drinking and people involved in TV. So they're already subject to a lot of the uh, logistics of filming a special, like people becoming a bit fatigued. So Mark had to kind of go back out, get them back up and get them back up, get them back up to a level, especially because not only do I want to have a good set, but I'm also filming as well. So it's also posterior. So like very admirable Mark and saved my life that night because they were flat. So I had to get them going again. So that really um this is the first time I shut up, Ricky. I'm now on the reading list. Deal with it. <laughs> oh, <fuck laughs> sake. I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm now on the list. I can't help it. This is, <laughs> it was all building up to this. This is the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> We're never going to do another one ever again. But well, no, because we. It's really nice that you bring that up because we were talking mm. about that. Um, that live at the BBC in the preamble, and I even yeah. I even said to Ricky, I did the warm up for that, and Ricky went, "Of course you fucking did the warm up for that." <laughs> hey, it's 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 a, it's an it's a it's a it's a really important job, and and that that was like I think that's been the refreshing part of my time on in the comedy industry is that while I had my icons and stuff, I looked I looked up to. You'll never know what this is like until you do it, and as always, I think the biggest overarching question that people have about comedy and when I speak to people that are aspiring comics it's kind of like what they want to know is how can I get there and be funny on stage and how can I avoid heckles and make money and it's like the things that you uh think are the most important things about stand-up are the questions that can only be answered by performing stand-up mm. people are kind of like oh what's it going to be like this I I can I'll never be able to articulate that experience for you. You, you, you it's like when it's like when you're trying to ask someone to describe heartbreak to you when you've recently like broken up with somebody and then somebody older than you goes, I don't know where you get over it. And you think, how the fuck can you say that? I'm dying from the inside out. <laughs> but it's because, I mean, no one can explain that journey to you of getting over heartbreak or rejection. It's just something you can only learn through experience and stand out is very much the same. So while I had the icons that I looked up to, it's the really, I'd say, yeah, the most profound respect for the people I've worked with, uh, my contemporaries and the people you interact with on a daily basis. And I think it's because you know, with the analogy of like, you know, you're mining for gold, the people that are gonna be close to you are gonna be the other fuckers in the mine trying to find theirs as well. And mm. that's what comedy is like, is that it's watching the people that are genuinely in there, you know, to support each other and make sure that we get the most from this, uh, you know, from this mine, as opposed to people that are just trying to make themselves rich. And you and you can always see like a clear difference. Um, and although I would much prefer to just make the rest of this about me, I suppose we should probably talk about some of those losers that are your contemporaries. <laughs> yeah. There's non, there's non Mark Olvers that we can cover a few of them. <laughs> <if> <laughs> <you must. laughs> who else? Who else do you like seeing when you're at a gig? Who else? Um, who else? Do I like, you like seeing. I've seen a lot of people. Uh, people uh, most of the time, I'm, I'm always quite pleasantly surprised. Like I love. I like to see Jason Manford. 
Uh, I really like Jason stuff. Uh, I like Lee Mack stuff. I like uh, I have a comedian called uh, Tanya Moore, who is a school uh, an old uh, mm. childhood friend as well as a comic. Oh, is she? T- Tanya yeah. did. Uh, Tanya did the first series of this. Tanya did an episode in the first series. Of, Naturally, yeah, of she's, this. yeah, she's definitely my go-to. She's always uh, happily uh, supporting all of my projects and stuff. And you know, like I said we, we were kids. Uh, I've known her since we were kids, and so it's really uh rewarding to have a contemporary that knows your life and your journey as well but I can mm. also tell you if you're getting your head your head gets too far up your own ass as well so <laughs> it's nice to have someone that can keep you grounded and um, i can imagine tanya doing that oh so, definitely yeah. yeah yeah definitely <laughs> one, of the, one of the best things about her um then uh i like i want to give her i want to give like a range of comics for different reasons as well so um ivo graham i like ivo um because Ivo gives me a window into a world I probably wouldn't know that much about. Um, and I think being able to enjoy uh, Ivo's material is testament to the fact that even though there may be a considerable gulf between our, uh, between cultures, it means there's so much commonality there and it just, it just typifies how amazing and important comedy is for uh, social harmony. Um, Ashley and B as well. Um, Ashley was team captain the first time I did eight out of 10 cats and uh, was super supportive and um i think you know ashleen is subject to like i think most women are in entertainment to a lot of objectification and people that may focus on the surface but i think you know her achievements are you know just there's are amazing and i think you know the word role model is very rarely used but but no i think she definitely is a role model um who else do i like um I recently, well, Catherine Ryan. So mm-hmm. Catherine Ryan is uh, well, is my surrogate sister in comedy. So I, I was uh, Catherine's tall support for a couple of years, mm. and um, how I was able to grow as, as a comic, and you know, to be able to exchange and discuss ideas and watch those go from a casual car conversation to materializing into actual shows is amazing. So. She's definitely my spirit animal. Uh, speaker spirit. What were the gigs like? What was it like supporting Catherine? It was great, man. It very it varied so much, man. I think watching Catherine Ryan as a comic, but also the Catherine Ryan as a brand, was very inspirational to me because uh, you know Catherine is a uh, very open about the fact that she was a, uh, she's a single working mother, uh, mm. which I found inspirational. And I think where I had been adverse to pursuing comedy in earnest because I was worried about other professional commitments and being an example to my family, watching somebody uh, juggle and balance all of those uh, responsibilities so well was very inspirational to me. You know, um, being a great comic and being an aspiring creative and being a mother as well, but at the same time, it can definitely be done uh, and still be able to walk out on stage every night and deliver that for an hour. So I found that massively inspirational. Um, and yeah, on the subject of inspiration as well, I'll tell you Jeannie Yashere, because where I had become aware of BT and comedy uh, around the 90s, I was spending a lot of time in the States because I got family there and I'm now a resident of the States. So I'm, I'm also an American resident. And so I feel like because of that, there is a, um, there's a big part of the bucket list to experience a level, uh, however small, of success in America. And I performed a few gigs there, here and there, but I think because it was the uh, American comedy has been so influential in forming my comedic voice, I think the ultimate test of accomplishment for me would be to make sure I could create a project that flies in America, where, which has informed so much of my uh, my style. And the best example I've seen in that is Jeannie Yashere. 
Um, you know, I think her record speaks for herself, like off the, uh, off the back of her own self-belief. She sold a uh, special to Netflix, has one on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, I think she may have been along with, so, I mean, obviously not more people know about James Corden, but Ginny Ashray has a sitcom, which I think is in its second or third season now on mm. CBS. And I think, like I said, given the trajectory I saw for most comedians to be a successful Black British comedian, to then have a sitcom in the States, I think, is just an amazing achievement that we all kind of dream of. So that's, so I'd say she's definitely influenced me. And um, I'd say Mo Gilligan as well, uh, a new, mm. new, new comedian. So Mo actually opened for me on my uh, second, first tour in Cardiff. And, you know, you fast forward about four years later, now he's doing arenas and, and shows and stuff as well. And again, Mo is somebody I know outside of comedy, like we play football together. But mm. I um so inspired by the work he's done. I feel like, you know, he's been able to, what looks like it can, to some people, the untrained eye can be like very low brown, very light comedy. I think if you look at some of the character creations Mo has done and who the, the people he's been able to um, engage with is his material. I think he has uh, rebuilt a bridge that a lot of people felt, uh, felt kind of was broken when we saw the kind of rise and fall of Richard Blackwood from mainstream media. I think he's bridged that gap. I think with creations like the Giza, he's been able to find the mutuality um, that uh, is healing the rift, I think has been created by the newspapers along the lines of Brexit and like race relations and the like. So um, it just shows you, like I said, politics can be very divisive, but um, I think comedy is very unifying. And I think uh, Mo's work kind of uh, typifies that. And I think, it's, and I just think it's important, particularly for, a lot of younger and aspiring black um, comic comedians and creatives to see that you can just be a, a black British superstar. It's important for them mm. to be able to see they can do that. So um, I definitely am inspired by that. Um, and but I think that's a, it's just, just to name a few, like, you know, even, you know, Roman Nathan, who I've worked with and Rob Beckett, um, again, great guys where I think it's very easy to kind of, there's always that, that balance, uh, Andrew Maxwell, uh, who I like as well. No, that's a really good point. Um, mm. Dane, thank you for this. Ricky, before we let Dane go, is there any anything you wanted to ask, whether it's about comedy, whether it's about comedians or anything like that? Is there anything in in that um, Macindo brain uh, that yeah. we can uh, steal from the Baptiste brain uh, before <laughs> we let him go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got, a, I've got a couple things. The main question that I wanted to ask was like, when you were saying the thing, it's quite an abstract question, but when you're saying the thing about how you try and get into other people's heads and to look at everyone's perspective in order to do comedy and to write material, um, how, what do you, because a lot of people say that when you're doing stand up, it's a very, uh, it's coming from you and your perspective. And that's what you're trying to put out into the world. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of, reconcile those two things like is are they exclusive or is it that you can do both at the same time because i can see how both would lead to creating good stand-up um yeah it's a really good question um i the way this was answered for me um and the way i can answer it for you is mr c is another community i work with that's warm up as well um mm -hmm. he did me some mentoring when i, I did a stand-up course um about 10 or so years ago and he said to me the in the stand-up, uh, it will never work unless the first thing you the first thing you're able to laugh at is yourself. Mm. So I would say that um, for you to 
be able to make observation about other people, whether it's like flaws in society or shortcomings in society, you have to see them within yourself first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being able to, and it's not, it's, it's not that it has to be like an a exercise in masochism or flagellation, mm-hmm. but being able to identify your own flaws first and, and talk about those, rationalize those and make those funny and be able to be self-deprecating for the sake of, I think is a very important exercise because, um, being honest enough uh, to and transparent with yourself to identify what flaws and shortcomings make you being able to see that in other people much more effectively. Um, mm. uh, and because you because you recognize them within yourself anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's most things with human beings is like in the same way that like people who are, you know, victims of abuse will pathologically create the same behavior. And, you know, we are, because human beings, we're, we are, we, people think we're fun, like our, our functions our cognitive functions come from teaching and they're rather from learning we learn from routine and seeing other people and patterns and that's how we because we're a social species so i'd say it's it's all the stuff you can find in yourself it's easy for you to pick up in other people because mm. you'll know if because i'll know if someone asks me a question or something that makes me uncomfortable i know what a defensive answer sounds like for me so then mm. if i'm speaking to an audience member or they have a behavior that appears defensive i can recognize the same pathology in other people because i recognize mm. it within myself so I think that's why it's that effective. Um, but I think, yeah, it's, it's as I said, it's, it's I, I think the most important thing is to be able to laugh at yourself. Um, you won't be able to make any cutting observations unless you can see the ones uh, within your own person initially. Because as I said, I think most human beings observe emotional states within themselves before they pretend to project to other people. Because we're, we're creatures of projection and stuff anyway. So yeah, I would say, those should those um, two disciplines of being able to study people as well as study yourself should happen uh, concurrently all the time. Um, mm. Yeah, there's, it's important to um, be able to detach yourself in order to kind of speak about stuff, but not to forget you are a person as well. So yeah. um, I think that's and that's why it's, I think it's it's probably reason one of the reasons why comedians have the advantage of uh, increasing our competence in our craft by living longer. Mm. And getting, we, mm. like, unlike musicians, that our appeal can increase as we get older because living and having life experiences feeds positively into our our work. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of other artists uh, can deal with the stigma of becoming detached as they get older, whereas mm-hmm. we get to kind of be be a bit more learned as we get older anyway, because experiences kind of inform our line of work anyway. So I'd say those two things are very linked, and there is always should be like a symbiosis in the same way that as a human being, you take care of yourself and what you decide as a standard for yourself should be the same standard you uh, give to other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think what I've been blown away by, by beating like successful slash famous comedians is that I think to be a good comedian, you have to be so self-aware that yeah. a lot of the big ones aren't full of themselves. Cause it's like, you can't, you have to have a self-awareness where you have to be constantly checking your behavior and stuff like that so if you become so detached Absolutely. it's like a unique superpower to have yeah and, and like i said it's it's i mean if you are if you are the most talented observational comedian one of the key observations is i'm just a i'm just a guy yeah so, you know one of my primary observations would be you are a human being that's like anybody else and so it would be remiss of me and more indicative of my lack of observations if i saw myself as something else so, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's why it's, it's effective that the best comedian, like I said, is it's you shouldn't be you shouldn't philosophically you shouldn't take anything too seriously. 
Mm, exactly. I can't, um, I can't think of a better way to end. I don't know yeah. if, you, if you had other questions, Ricky, but that feels like the best way uh, to finish this because that is the essence of what this podcast is about and it's the essence of what stand-up is about as well. Yeah, it was a really good bookend. I love that. Thanks so much, Dan. No, my absolute pleasure, man. And a pleasure to meet you as well. Thank you for having me, Mark, as well. And yeah, um, many, um, any questions, always holler at me, man. That's the thing is, is, is you should, you, we will always continue to have questions, both you and I. And so I'd be keen to find out more about how your journey's going. And uh, yeah, any questions, then yeah, feel free to get in touch. And also any gigs, any any, any rooms you want to do, any play black room, I'll see if I can, I'll put some figures out and see if there's still some around. So there should, should be a few. Thanks a lot. Take care, nice then. Have a good day, guys. Wow. What a podcast. I think Dane is a really interesting one that that he, like, he's absolutely a deep thinker. Like, you can yeah. absolutely see that. Like, fuck me, that boy thinks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is that definitely. quite nice for you to see and, and to listen to and go, oh, fuck me, this is someone who has properly sat down and given all of this shitloads of thought? Yeah, yeah. It's just so weird because it's like... Uh, there's just, there doesn't seem to be anything that comedians have in common. Like, they're like, there are similarities, but there's so many different types of people that do stand up and do well at stand up and so many different ways of being a stand up. Like, it, just looking at the people that we've had on the podcast, like, I can't, I've been trying to think of something that they have, all of them have in common, except that they're funny. And it's just, they all have their own unique way of no, doing what they see, do. I see, I disagree with you. Interesting. What do you mean? Um, I, I think, like, I think we're all the same. <laughs> I think we are, like, I think we are all, uh, a weird mix of social and antisocial at the same time. Yeah. We're all, um, we're all, when we get our teeth into something, we're like a dog with a bone and stand we're up upset. is up. We're and obsessive, we're like, yeah. Oh, we're, we're all, if you look at stand-ups, nearly all stand-ups are um, not just have a thing about stand-up, but have another thing, whether it's football, whether it's comic books, whether it's, roller skating whether it's mm. languages whether it's drugs or sex or booze, yeah. whether it's like like for me the reason i like being a stand-up is that when i meet the stand-ups who gig quite a lot or work or earn money or are famous or whatever i'm like oh yeah we're the same <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel, like, like i feel that that is that that, that is my clan that that is I I think all of us. Do you know what? I can guarantee. So me and you, I've met a couple of your friends at some little yeah. gigs in Bristol, but I can guarantee that I could write a little biopic of Ricky Masindo or draw a little map of what you were like, and I bet you had. Oh, here we go. Yeah, answer this. Yeah, let's go for it. I think i'm gonna guess no i'm not even gonna think i know yeah that when you were at school yeah you had some friends in the like the music bit but then yeah. you also would have found uh some friends who were slightly more sciencey and geeky and academic yeah, <laughs> yeah. But i bet there was also because you're not a football fan but i bet 
there was also a, rugby. A t- yeah, but all, a little sporty group. But yeah. also, I bet because you were the black kid in this school, and there weren't many other black kids. I bet you also were were accepted a little bit by the kind of the kiddies on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily the bad kids wow. or the weird kids. Yeah. But, <laughs> That's like, actually so funny. Because <laughs> I think I think stand-ups were really good at being able to be part of every single group, but never feel like we are in the center of every single group. Oh my God, that is actually so weird that you said that because I was having this <laughs> conversation last night with one of my close friends and Hannah, my girlfriend. And it was that I was like, at one point in my life, I thought I was someone who didn't have many friends. But then I realized it's not that I don't have many friends. It's that I have many close friendships with many different people who don't know each other. So it's like, I am in so many different friendship groups and those people will invite me to things, but I don't have like a central group that I spend all my time with. So that is actually spot on. I've not got a mic. I can't do a mic drop with a microphone, but I've got a Twitch. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we are uh, we are ending this particular episode with boom. A Twix drop. drop. A Twitch drop. That's true. So, okay, so it's similar people living different lives. Yeah, but yeah. then... Dane's experience and Michael McIntyre's experience and Jerry Seinfeld's experience and Chris Rock's experience and my experience is also incredibly similar because you have to find the gigs, you have to work out who you are, you have to gig all the time, you have to travel loads. You know, like, that that is sort of... That's how you become a stand-up comedian. Mm. Um, yeah. Some people might have more privilege and some people have might have easier access and more money and some people might have... Uh, it might be easier to do it in London. It might be easier to do it in Bristol. It might be more difficult to do it in Truro or in North Wales. But the processes are the same and... A lot of the people, are, I, whenever if I meet a stand-up comedian, if I meet a famous person, yeah, um, it's always like, oh god, you know, you're a famous person. But if they're a famous stand-up comedian, I'm just like, oh, so do you remember doing <laughs> ten minutes at the old Battersea? And I'm like, holy oh. shit, yeah, yeah, we are just similar introverted extroverts um uh Masindo, i'm going uh into uh uh cuckoo i am going into <laughs> my uh um into my uh, hotel ibis um, yeah and we will talk well we'll talk in a couple of days time. yeah a couple of days time i'll see you then yeah, uh, take care bud you too Bye. i'll see you peace